if there's stress, stressful stuff, and you know, who doesn't have that, the run eases it. It, it absolutely does. There, I, I, we hear this, of course, from lots of people, um, and you know, more and more people are figuring out what's going on in terms of brain chemistry that eases uh, anxiety and stress. I'm talking about serious uh, stress with people, you know, clinical anxiety. Uh, I, but I feel that. And, and so years and years ago, I kind of assumed uh, a mantra, if you will, and that is, you know, you come home from work and you hadn't run, but, and, and it, it is, you know, when in doubt, do it. And it served me well. And it still doesn't mean I haven't missed some days. I, it, but I'm kind of on the fence. I'm a little tired. I don't feel up to it. A lot of my mind. Get out the door. Get in some miles. And I, I always find I'm better off for it. going on everyone that was george hirsch i'm your host mario fraioli and you are listening to the morning shakeout podcast the 50th running of the new york city marathon is just a couple weekends away and who better to talk to about it than george hirsch chairman of the new york roadrunners and someone who has been involved with the event to one degree or another since its beginnings this conversation was a real treat for me. We spent half of it talking about the New York City Marathon, its history, its stories, its allure, and more. We also discussed how all of those things went into a new book called The New York City Marathon, 50 Years Running, which is a coffee table keepsake that I'm really enjoying right now. Then I got George to tell me more about himself, his legendary career in publishing, which included a stint at Runner's World during its heyday how he got his start in running back in the 1960s, what keeps him running six days a week at 87 years old, how his relationship to it has evolved over the decades, and a lot more. This episode is brought to you by Runderwear, the original performance underwear for running. I'll tell you right now, I was anti-running underwear for the longest time until I tried Runderwear. Most running shorts have built-in liners and you don't need much else, but half tights and tights and some other pairs of shorts, well, they present a problem without many good solutions. I'm personally a half tight guy. I wear them for my speed workouts, long runs and races, and most of them, well, guess what? They don't have liners. That's where Runderwear comes in and saves the day. Runderwear's running briefs are so comfortable. They're lightweight, snug, seamless, moisture-wicking, and just the perfect solution to wear under half tights, shorts with no or poor liners, or long tights as we head into winter. There's absolutely no rubbing or chafing at all. They're amazing. And in addition to the briefs, Runderwear also makes other styles of seamless performance running underwear, basewear, bras, and socks that are all incredibly comfortable, moisture-wicking, and chafe-free. Designed in the UK, now with operations and distributions here in the US, you can pick up some Runderwear for yourself at runderwear.com. That's R U N D E R W E A R 
com and use the code TMS20, that's capital T, capital M, capital S, two zero for 20% off at checkout. That's a great deal, and I promise you that you can't go wrong with adding some underwear to your wardrobe today. This episode is also brought to you by my friends at Precision Hydration, and as the name suggests, they're experts in helping you nail your hydration strategy. That said, I was stoked to hear that they're now doing for fueling what they've done for hydration, and I've been using their new Precision Fuel products regularly the past few months in training and racing. Both the gels and drink mix work great, and I was an instant convert. They have subtle taste, provide steady energy, and haven't given me any gut issues. Head over to precisionhydration.com and check out the quick carb calculator. All you need to do is enter what type of event you're training for, how long you're expecting to be racing, and at what intensity, and they'll tell you how many grams of carbohydrate that you should be taking in per hour and how their products will help you to address those needs. You can even book a free 20-minute video call with them on the footer of their website to ask any questions that you have about hydration or fueling for your next event. As a listener of the show, you can get 15% off your first order by using the code TMS15, that's capital T, capital M, capital S, 15, when checking out at precisionhydration.com. Okay, please enjoy my uninterrupted conversation with publishing legend and New York Roadrunner chairman of the board, George Hirsch. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. The 50th running of the New York City Marathon is right around the corner. Now, this is an event that you've been involved with since nearly the beginning, certainly the current five borough iteration of the race. And you're also the chairman of the New York Roadrunners, which is the organization that puts the race on. Last year's race didn't happen for obvious reasons. I'm just curious, how are you feeling right now, just a couple of weeks out? I'm feeling uh, excited. Uh challenged i would say of the 50 in many ways this is the one that i think presents the most challenges uh obviously the health and safety protocols all the concerns around international travel uh, crowds uh uh <laughs> water stations baggage uh for the team, it's, it's, it's very, very complex. At the same time, uh, I think uh, when we talk uh, after November 7th, mm-hmm. I think I, I may tell you, I hope to, that in many ways it may be the most rewarding uh of all 50 of them, just simply because the city so desperately needs this. Um, There is nothing like it. The theater is back open. The opera is back open. We had a, a terrific U.S. Open. But there's nothing else where a million plus people are out on the streets and as you saw in Boston, you ran it, uh, you know, less than two weeks ago. Uh, people are 
people are dying to get out there, whether mm-hmm. it's to run or cheer or volunteer or whatever. So I expect it. Uh, it's going to be a, a very inspirational, very meaningful day here in the city. What can an event like this do for the city of New York, given everything that we've gone through over the past year and a half? Yeah, I think I think it's deep in the, the DNA of the marathon that at times of uh, crisis uh, or when the city has been in a really bad place, that this marathon has really lifted the spirit of the city. And I would go right back to the very first one, which I didn't run. I was there and I ran the opposite way, uh, cheering on my friends in Central Park in 1970. Back then, Central Park was not the crown jewel uh, that it is today. It was a place uh, with a lot of drug dealing and graffiti and uh, it wasn't considered safe, certainly after dark. And the then mayor, going all the way back then, John Lindsay, had decided to stage events in Central Park, which hadn't hadn't happened. And Fred Lebo and Vince Chiappetta, the race director of this really small, humble <laughs> beginning race, were aware of that. And uh, you know the story, 127 starters, only one woman, Nina Cusick. Uh, more than half of them didn't even finish. It was a difficult, hot day, and Central Park is a hilly course. Uh, but it was part of revitalizing uh the park in the city, and that that was much more true uh, in 1976. At that point, uh, the city was on the verge of bankruptcy. Crime was sky high. Uh, when three of us, Fred Lebo, uh, a well-known politician, Percy Sutton, and I went to see Mayor A. Beam. We pitched the idea of a five-borough marathon on one more uh, way to uh, help the city at such a difficult time, and we presented it as part of the bicentennial, the 200th anniversary of the nation, and we said in conjunction with the tall ships, we thought this could could be something uh, that people would enjoy at such a tough time. And believe it or not, uh, he he said yes on the spot. I think back on it now, <laughs> uh, you know, almost 50 years later, he didn't pick up the phone, didn't call the police chief or, <laughs> or you know, the city council. I mean, I guess things uh, worked a little differently then. And 
you know, when we walked out of there, uh, I'm not sure he knew what he fully agreed to. And uh, maybe we didn't even ourselves. Uh, but uh, it was game on. And for Fred Lebo, this uh, Romanian Holocaust survivor, New York character, uh who'd been doing knockoffs in the garment center. This was, this, he found his life's work uh, right then and there. Uh, he had been the president of this little fledgling New York Roadrunners club. But, you know, the truth, <laughs> the truth of it is that wasn't exactly a big deal and no one was paying him to do it. Uh, but his skills as a promoter and a media savvy entrepreneur, you know, all came to the fore and he took over and uh, it was, uh, it was a big lift for the city. And it's been going in that five borough format ever since, but at the time in 19, 19- 76 could any of you ever have imagined that this was going to be an annual event that ran through all five boroughs of the city or did you guys think that well hey uh even if this goes well we may very well end up back in central park next year or the city may just not have a marathon at all yeah i i think deep down fred and i ted corbett whom Fred had the first president of the New York Roadrunners, uh, you know, an Olympic marathoner back in 52. He was sort of an iconic figure in our little running community back then. I think we all thought and hoped that it could work and that we would carry it forward. Uh, But we didn't, as I say, we didn't uh, present it that way to, to Mayor Beam. Uh, I think we did. Uh, did we think it would become what it is today? The honest answer is I sure didn't. Fred was a visionary. And I, I think somewhere deep inside him, I, I think maybe he did. Uh, he always used to say, you know, you haven't even seen anything yet i mean this is this is just taking off and i'm talking about you know by the time we were getting thirty thousand runners and it was a you know it was an established uh uh an event uh in terms of world sporting events uh even then he he kept saying to me you haven't even seen the beginning of this yet so he did um i i would love to tell you I did, but I didn't see it that, that you know, coming to where it is now. Well, the first six years of the race, when it was held in Central Park, a few hundred people ran it each year. And that first year that it was a five-borough race, I believe it was a 1,500-person race or 1,500 folks finished it, suddenly making it the largest marathon in the world. Was that Fred's vision from the very beginning or were you all surprised that it came together that way? Well, we were pleased. Uh, It was his vision. And actually the number is we had 2000 uh, in in 76 runners and um, roughly a hundred were women. And 
you're right. It was bigger than Boston had been that April in 76, making it instantly the world's largest marathon. Now, those may seem like pretty small numbers, but uh, it, it spelled success in a, in a, in a big way. And uh, people came out, not the kind of crowds we're going to see out on the streets here in a few weeks, but people just took to it immediately. It was really interesting. And some races, as you know, um, early on, they, they have problems with the city, problems with traffic, problems with Sunday morning churchgoers and issues get ready. The city embraced it right, right from the get-go. So there was no looking back at that point. It was it was the New York City Marathon. And it really kicked off what we now know as big city marathons because prior to New York, there was Boston, which has a much longer history. But as we all know, Boston is that famed course that starts in the small town of Hopkinton and you run the last few miles in the city of Boston. But the New York City Marathon was the first race that I'm aware of anyway that was fully in the city that bore its name. And exactly. from that, we saw London. I think we eventually saw Beijing, Tokyo, and a whole lot of other races. So it really served as a catalyst to what is now the world of big city marathons and marathon majors. You're absolutely right. It was the first. Boston is run, as you say, uh, all but the last miles outside of the city. And when... We asked Frank Shorter to come, <laughs> uh, half-jokingly. He, he agreed, saying, uh, you know, I, I'm coming because I'd just like to see them <laughs> try to close down New York City to run a foot race. Uh, it, it, was, it was pretty unheard of at the time, and, and it absolutely uh, set the tone and the, for marathons around the world, many of them. Um, came to us to get advice. Chris Brasher uh, came to us uh, uh, to talk to me, to talk to Fred, to talk to Fred's team uh, about how to launch that mag uh, that marathon in in London. So, yeah, it 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 was very significant in terms of the running boom. Ted Corbett, who you mentioned a little while ago, designed the five borough course. Can you give me and the listeners some insight as to how he thought about that and what went into it when he was trying to link all of the different boroughs together with the finish in Central Park where the marathon had been held previously the six years prior? Yeah, Ted, Ted uh, set a goal for himself uh, one, it, 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 we had already uh, established that was going to be in the five boroughs, or at least <laughs> at least touch on all five boroughs. Uh, it was going to cross the Verrazzano Bridge, and it was going to finish in Central Park, and the and the rest was really up to Ted, and he was uh, he was an amazing. Uh, person in so many ways. I mean, he was uh, uh, quiet and humble, but we all 
respected him and looked up to him. And, uh, and, and so what he set out to do was to it, it try to find a way that, one, we got into all the boroughs, and he barely, uh, you know, included the Bronx. Uh, the course, then uh, there have been some changes, not, not dramatic changes, but a few that were important. But the course crossed the Willis Avenue Bridge and ran around a telephone pole. <laughs> and it therefore got some yards into the Bronx. And then you did a complete 180, uh, if you were sort of good at that kind of thing. Uh, you grabbed the pole and spun yourself around, because it's not easy, as you know, uh, mm -hmm. to go completely <laughs> 180 in the opposite direction. Uh, but at least he got himself into the Bronx by doing that. And just a, a side note, uh, uh, Bill had opened up a lead at that point, uh, uh, Bill Rogers, and mm -hmm. um, Frank was in second. And it was, it was a clear lead. He had established himself at, at that point, 20, 20 miles, a little over 20 miles into the race. And so Bill was coming back as Frank was approaching uh, <laughs> this, this lamppost. Uh, and as they crossed each other, uh, Frank said, congratulations, Bill. I mean, he, he, was, he was already up a couple of two or three minutes. He won, I think, by three minutes. Uh, so uh, at that point, as you well know, um, Uh, the the mantle, you know, was passed. Uh, Frank had been uh, really the world's greatest marathon runner in the first part of the decade of the 70s. And I would say at that moment on the Willis Avenue Bridge, um, uh, the torch went on to Bill and he went on to win all the first four New Yorks and uh, won three more Bostons to add to the one he had already won. And, and then he, you know, every weekend he was winning something somewhere, 10 K races all over the place and, you know, marathons. And, uh, he, he became the guy for sure. Well, I appreciate you sharing that story. And it actually gives me a bit of insight because in the book, New York City Marathon 50 Years Running, which we'll talk about here in a second. There's an amazing photo of Bill Rogers from that race with his hand on the pole, flipping himself around. And I couldn't figure out for the life of me what he was doing or why he was doing it. Oh, did he go the wrong way? He wasn't supposed to go that way. He's off course yeah, and he's just getting was, himself back on and he still it, won. But no, that's how the, that's how the course went. That's it, what all the it, runners did. It was crazy. And You asked about Ted Corbett, not easy to lay out a course that had, you know, and was already prescribed that had to start in Staten Island, right. uh, had to finish in Central Park. Uh, so it, it didn't, didn't leave a lot uh, for, for the poor Bronx at that point. So, and, and Frank was staying with me. So um, I remember I ran the race and, and, When I finished, um, 
it was a chilly day and he had a wool cap. He was waiting for me and he was really chilly and I finished and we walked out of the park over to Central Park West. And I said, do you have any money? And he, <laughs> he said, I don't. And I said, neither do I. And we started hitchhiking on Central Park West. And uh, it was incredible because these guys stopped and picked us up. And there were two guys from Philadelphia who had come up to see the marathon. And Mario, you know the sport. And you know back then, Frank was, you know, the guy. And he looked in his rearview mirror and he kind of, he paused and he said, oh, my God, Frank Shorter. And, and, and he said, where are you guys going? And I said, we're just going down to 32nd Street. And he said, how about Miami? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you should know, uh, maybe I wrote this in the introduction to, my, to the book that you just referred to. I think I did. You know, Bill had it even worse. Um, He had parked his car on the Upper West Side. And, you know, this was pretty basic back then. And he went up after he got his uh, Samuel Rudin trophy, which uh, was even awarded right then and named in honor of the Rudin family who put up the first real money and uh, an influential business family in the city. And um, his car wasn't there. It had been towed away. (laughs) So Bill came back down (laughs) and Fred staked him to 90 bucks so he could get his car out of the police pound. Uh, it It was quite different back then. That that evening, I, I had a, a house, with, you know, which you call in New York a brownstone in the East 30s. And we had a big party uh, to celebrate it. And Fred and Bill and Frank and George Spitz, whose idea the, the, the thing was to do a five borough marathon. Everyone was there. And uh, it was <laughs> it was very celebratory. Uh, it was quite something. It's amazing to hear how it has evolved over the last 50 plus years. I think this is a good segue to talk about the book that I mentioned, New York City Marathon, 50 Years Running. It's edited by Richard O'Brien. You wrote the foreword to it. It's a beautiful volume that chronicles and celebrates this incredible race through like republished articles and photos that ran in various magazines and newspapers over the years. I remembered some of the more recent ones and enjoyed rereading those, but I particularly loved the earlier stories that came before I ever had any interest in marathon running or heck, even before I was born um, for a lot of the, the early years. But what can you tell me about this this book, this coffee table book, its genesis, what the process of selecting the stories and putting it together looked like and who you hope to reach with it. Hats off to Rich O'Brien. He was a long time senior editor of Sports Illustrated, but he he was a running guy too uh, and has run marathons, certainly run New York, loves the sport. Uh, he, he was the perfect, it was the perfect person, uh, with his editorial skills and his, his deep running knowledge. 
uh, it, to put it together. And it was just as you say, rather than go back and uh, reinvent the wheel, the idea was to pick out some of the best running journalism by some of the, you know, the best writers. Uh, and he decided uh, to break the book down into the five decades. And he wrote a forward for each of the decades and he goes all the way back and, uh, you know, Bill and Mickey Gorman winning that first five borough, which I, I think was uh, hugely significant uh, in terms of all of the history of the marathon and even the history of the sport. Uh, and then, you know, just so many great stories, Ibrahim Hussein the first African, the first Kenyan to win New York. He also won Boston. Rod Dixon, that incredibly, uh, uh, you know, close finish over Jeff Smith where he just, you know, <laughs> uh, beat him. And there was Jeff Smith, you know, <laughs> sprawled out on the pavement. One of the Rod. most iconic images of all Abs time. Absolutely. It was great. Herman Silva, uh, you know, following the camera truck just a little too early into Central Park. In other words, running a, a, a little bit out of the way in the last mile of the course when he was leading and his training partner just during that whatever amount of time that Herman ran off the course taking the lead and Herman circling back uh it became I think one of the most interesting moments in the in the history of the race and in catching him uh, and winning the race. Uh, great story. Of course, Greta, 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 nine times Greta, uh, first in 1978, having never run a marathon, but having been a true world-class runner, cross-country world champion, uh, Olympian on the track. I mean, uh, I mean obviously, uh, we were now going from some very good runners into some, you know, really top athletes and, uh, and, and her, you know, uh, I don't know what we would call it, but her, her, uh, importance in terms of the history of New York city marathon is, is unequaled, uh, uh, there was a period in the 80s, uh, and I'm very prone to this because I've lived in Italy and these guys are all dear friends of mine. We had the golden age of Italian champions. Uh, Orlando Pizzolato won it twice and two Bordine. years in a row. And then, no, Tolindo uh, never won New York. Uh, he won everything else, including the Olympics in Boston. He did Stefano run Baldini did, though. And Baldini didn't either. win New York either. No, Those are two the Olympic champions, mm -hmm. right. But right. it was Pizzolatto and a, a really dear friend of mine, Johnny Poli, uh, won it after uh, Orlando did. Um, and, and Franca Fiaconi won it on the women's side. And then later, 
uh, a policeman named uh, Giacomo Leone. So it's been a lot of years. We're looking for <laughs> we're looking for another Italian champion. Uh, but you know, there there's just been sort of wonderful episodes in this history, and I think. Rich O'Brien did a did a just a incredible job of of weaving them together and making this uh, something special for runners. Yeah, it's a beautiful keepsake. As someone who has been to numerous New York City marathons and ran it myself, last time it was held actually in 2019, it's it's really special to me, and it feels special to have been a part of it um, and to have experienced the race because it is very special and there is nothing else like it in the world of marathoning. Yeah, I think that's true. And I mean, look, uh, you know, when I'm in Boston, like a couple of weeks ago, I just, every time I'm there and I've been to the Boston marathon a lot, run it a few times. Uh, I, I fall in love with it all over again. It's the first race I ran uh, going all the way back to 1969, and uh, it was it was of the utmost importance back then. I mean, nothing else measured up to it. It's why I didn't even run those first ones in Central Park because I was a busy magazine publisher, and training for a marathon is something you know we all take seriously. And I figured. You know, I'll train for Boston, and then uh, it, 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 that was the one that that really counted. Uh, but now I think if you're talking about an international event, uh, you know, it's it's New York. I have to ask, since you just mentioned it, and I'm Italian American. Myself, the times I've been Mario Fraioli, I know, Italian American. I'm just learning all kinds of things today. (laughs) Well, I mean, to to be fair, my my mother was Irish American, so I've got that kind of classic. Where's where's your family from? uh, Frosinone, which is south of Rome. I I know that. Uh, I lived in I lived in Naples uh, when I was young. I don't know if you know. I have a long. Italian history, are you you aware of any of that in terms of, you know, uh, uh, starting magazines like... like, uh, Runner's World Italy and La Cucina Italiana, yes, I'm very familiar with that. Men's South Italy, and uh, I've been involved in, you know, a lot of races there, and and as long as no one's listening, I'll tell you this too, Uh, right before the pandemic, I was honored by the Republic of Italy, and I was knighted at the uh, Italian consulate here in New York. And uh, so I'm a cavaliere now. And so far, it hasn't gotten me any free cappuccinos, <laughs> but uh, my my Italian friends are quite amused by it. Well, if I had known that, I would have addressed you properly at the, Cavali- at the top of the show. Cavaliere, exactly. <laughs> Well, one thing I've I've always been curious about, and no one's been able to explain this to me, but you might be the person, just given your relationship with Italy and the New York City Marathon, but what 
is it about the special relationship that Italian runners have with the New York City Marathon? I mean, they go crazy over it more than any other event, even events that are in Italy or in Europe. It's, it's New York City Marathon is just levels above. And I've always been curious as to why. That's the second time I've been asked that question in the last two days. Uh, Runners World Italy talked to me yesterday and they asked me the very <laughs> same question. And I think, I think it's a bunch of things, Mario. One is um, I've never met a New Yorker who doesn't love Italy. I've never met an Italian who doesn't love New York. And I really mean that. I mean, it's, it's this incredible uh, love affair. Uh, beyond that, if you win the New York City Marathon, like the people we just chatted about, uh, Pizzolatto, Johnny Poli, uh, that stays with you almost, I would say, to the same degree as Jolindo Bourdin and Stefano Baldini winning the Olympics. Mm -hmm. It's that it's of that magnitude. So why is your question? Uh, Partly it's the love affair. Uh, Italian groups, as you know, the, the, the Italian travel groups love coming here. I've had more heartbroken <laughs> emails in the last day since they announced that, you know, uh, foreigners aren't allowed, even fully vaccinated ones can't come into the country until the 8th of November. We were all hoping that would be the first. And they're devastated, truly devastated. Also, there is, you know, the Rome Marathon and it's changed ownership and leadership and the course and Venice is quite spectacular. I mean, these are marathons I've run. Florence is perfectly okay. They don't have... Uh, a, a, you know, a London or a Paris type marathon. I mean, they should, but they don't. So it kind of, it kind of comes down to the New York City Marathon. If you're an Italian, they, all the Italian runners, their resume isn't complete until it says, you know, that they've completed New York. Yeah. Yeah. We could go on for several more hours about the New York City Marathon because there's 50-plus years of history to, yeah, to go no. through, and that could be a show unto itself. But I'm going to ask one more question right now specific to the race before moving on to some other topics. But you've been involved with it since the very beginning. All, all 50 years, yep. And I know this is a tough question to ask. I'm sure you've been asked it before, but what is your favorite memory of the New York City Marathon or your favorite story from the race? Oh, wow. That's so good. Well, usually those things get personal. Um, that 76 one, crossing the Verrazzano Bridge and running onto the streets of Brooklyn and seeing all those people out there. It was like, oh my gosh, this is happening. That I, that I remember. I ran 
in 94 with one of my sons, David, and that's very special. Uh, he had never run a marathon before or since, but, uh, and it was right after Fred died. And I, I, I can tell you a memory. There was a race in the park. Gosh, I wish I could remember. It was one of the longer races. It was more than a half marathon, I believe. Maybe it was a half. Maybe it was 18 miles. It had to have been five or six weeks before the marathon. And the night before, I was sitting up with Fred, and he was very, very sick. And we were just talking, and... It, 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 his voice was so faint that I remember he was kind of pulling me close to him and it was it was just audible above a whisper. And the next morning, David and I ran the race in the park. It was a tune-up race for the marathon. And we jogged over to Fred's apartment. And... I just walked up. The doorman knew me really well, and I walked up, and Fred's sister, Sarah, opened the door, and she just grabbed me, and he had died. He had died after I left that night. So that marathon in 94 that I ran with my son was, it was a moving tribute to Fred, uh, People had his name on their shirts, and uh, that was very special, Mario. I appreciate you sharing that story. And, I mean, I don't even know what to say to that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I didn't think it would. <laughs> I, just sort of recalling it, uh as you can tell, I. But but it's an incredible emotional. story. Yeah, no, and an incredible it, memory for someone. An incredible who memory. Meant a lot I, to you, and also I had no reason to run the marathon that year, other than for David. If I'm not mistaken, and I I could be by a week. I think Chicago back then was like a week before. And I had run Chicago as a serious marathon. I mean, I, for me, you know, I ran, I went out and ran hard. And, uh, and then I ran this one to accompany David, you know, and, and I was part of this whole, uh, you know, runners uh, celebrating Fred. What lasting impression did he leave on you? Yeah, so Fred, first of all, I should tell you, uh, for, for whatever reasons people become good friends, we did. And this was back long before iPhones and even before speed dialing. I bet Fred and I talked a couple of times a day. You know, uh, he was running the Roadrunners. I was publishing Runner's World, and we traveled everywhere. People invited us to races or, or we went, whether we talked about Rome a minute ago. I remember Rome. Uh, 
I remember I got back to the hotel. <laughs> I got back to the hotel in Rome, and we were all at this kind of race headquarters hotel. And no Fred, no Fred, and he wasn't the swiftest runner. So the, the first hour or two, we didn't particularly get concerned. <laughs> uh, what happened is he uh, went and lay down on the side of the road and fell asleep during the marathon. <laughs> and then he got up and he eventually finished it and got, he got home. Uh, I don't know. Fred was just always, uh, a piece of work. I remember, uh, I, oh, I think it, I can't remember if it was the same trip. It was, I'm thinking of Rome now. Um, oh, I remember. It, it was the World Cross Country Championship. It had been scheduled for Poland, and because of big strikes that were going on in Gdansk and so on, at the last minute, they moved it to a horse race track in Rome. And it was a week apart from the Rome Marathon, probably the one I just mentioned. So we all hung around Italy. And I left after the Rome Marathon. I knew I had a week and I just, you know, took a car and I, I remember I went up to Siena and, and, you know, I went to Florence. I just spent, and I came back on late Friday night and I came into the hotel uh, breakfast the next morning, you know, wearing a pair of jeans and a T-shirt. And Fred was there and he he said, uh, are you coming to see the Pope? Uh, Because you're... What do you mean? I said, the Pope. He said, no, there's a private audience around the World Cross Country Champion, and you and I are on the list, and we better get going. So off we go (laughs) to see the Pope. And uh, along with, I think what they did is the uh, IAAF uh, picked, selected one runner from each country to come to this. So when I say a private audience, I don't mean private. I mean, there could have been 80, 80 people there. You understand. And mm-hmm. so we, we zip over to the Vatican. And this was after the Pope. You may remember there was an assassination attempt on the Pope, Pope, uh, Jovan, uh, John, John Paul II. John, yep. And he was still weak, but he came in, and Primo Nebbiolo was the head of the IAAF then. He was a pretty interesting character uh, from Torino and a, kind of a power guy, no nonsense. And the Pope spoke a little bit, and then Nebbiolo and the Pope came around and started talking. And each person, you know, would say, I'm, you know, Dag, you know, Johansson from Norway or whatever. And he got to me. <laughs> I remember, I think he liked the fact there's this older guy, but dressed no different than the runners with the little gray hair. 
And I said, well, I'm George Hirsch from the United States. And he said, well, I hope you win. <laughs> and Naviolo says, well, if he wins, we lose. I don't know what he meant by that, but he was kind of, he was kind of a tough guy. And then the Pope threw his hands up into the air and he said, I hope everybody wins. <laughs> that's, that's why you get to be the Pope. So he gets to Fred and Fred says, um, I'm Fred Lebo. I'm the head of the New York City Marathon. And the Pope stops and he says, well, that's an incredible event. That's one of the, you know, the most famous events in the world. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. And you have to remember, no iPhones, no, no nothing back then. And we're walking out and I said, Fred, and, and, and a photographer uh, snapped some pictures and there's the Pope and there's Fred. And so we're walking out and I said, Fred, that's terrific. Um, that, you know, that could be a story. He said, I've already called it in. <laughs> that was Fred. I mean, <laughs> yeah. and, and, the, and he, Fred was full of fun and exaggeration but the media liked them. I mean, they didn't take him over, overly seriously on some stuff, but he was a good story. I, I remember once he called me and he said, we're going to offer a million dollars. We didn't have any money to speak of, Mario. This is early on. He said, we're going to offer a million dollar prize money to anyone who breaks two hours in the New York City Marathon. I said, Fred. That's preposterous. No one is going to break two hours in the New York City Marathon. And I guarantee you they're not going to break it in your lifetime or my lifetime. He said, George, I know that. And you know that. Let's see what happens. Of course, the next day, New York City in the tabloids, New York City Marathon offering a million dollar prize. <laughs> he knew how that, to get eyeballs on the event. He, he, he had it. He had it. And uh and he, you know, he made it enjoyable for people. Those are great stories. I want to pivot the conversation to you at this point. You mentioned how you ran your first race, first marathon at the 1969 Boston Marathon. And I'm curious, when did running and how did running come into your life? Yeah. And first of all, it was my first race. There were no 5Ks or 10Ks, just so you know. I sent them $2.00 and a doctor's letter saying that I was healthy and how the doctor would know whether I could, you know, cover 26 <laughs> miles is, is a whole other question. But uh, so that was my first race. How old were you? Um, 69, I would have been 35. Okay. Uh, yeah. So that was it. So I started, if you will, you know, a little bit late and I, I didn't even get my PRs until I was, uh, you know, mid forties to tell you the truth. Cause you know, I, you'll, we all learn a little bit as we go and then you train more and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so I was a, a slow high school and college quarter and half miler and to be a, 
quarter mile. We didn't know what the word meant. We didn't have the expression back then. But to be a a quarter mile or with no fast twitch fiber is not a good thing to be. Uh, but I didn't know any better. And no one said, you know, maybe you ought to, you know, try something longer. So that's what I was. And I enjoyed it because I liked being on a team and I liked the camaraderie. But as I say, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't particularly good. Uh, and then I stopped running after college and went on with my life. And we were, uh, we had launched New York Magazine um, and working, you know, any startup, you know what that's like. You work your head off. And um, this is, uh, oh, 1968, we launched New York. And I just remembered I was getting out of shape and feeling it. And I could see even my belt needed to loosen up a couple of notches. So I knew something about running. And I had one of those clunky stopwatches. And I would go outside of my apartment house and I'd click it, no warm up, and run around the block as fast as I could. And then I'd come home. And I'd write it in this little notebook, whatever it was, three minutes and 24 seconds. And then the next day I would try to beat that. And that was my idea of running. And one day you, there were no runners. I mean, that you saw certainly not out in the streets. I mean, it was just, it was just was a, you know, sort of a goofy thing if you saw a runner. And one day this Guy comes by, but he's running at a much more leisurely pace. And we stopped and we talked. And his name is Vince Chiappetta. And he was uh, he was the president of this little New York Roadrunners Club, which I had never heard of and didn't know anything about it. And then we started meeting up in the morning. And he was a, a college teacher and he was telling me about these long distances that he ran and he had run the Boston Marathon. And I knew what it was, of course, but the, I, I never knew people who ran it. Uh, I, that was like, you know, like a different breed. Mm -hmm. And so I, I used to meet up with him and we would make a point of it. And then we'd often, you know, have a coffee after a run and, he, so he was my first uh, connection. I, I call him my first mentor, really. And we slowed the pace down. We added to the distance. And within a matter of months, and I hadn't run any long distances, or I don't think I'd gone much more than 13, 14, whatever miles, um, I went up and ran that Boston Marathon. And... Uh, uh, you know, of course, at that point, like a lot of people, particularly if you're not overly prepared, you know, you're, you're hobbling around and you don't feel great. I was like, well, I've done that. And the, uh, so the night after I was invited to a dinner party in New York and there were a group of people, I don't know, 10 people, my wife and I. And back then there was a late 
night talk show host named David Susskind. You can Google him. He okay. was really well-known. And somewhere during the dinner, someone said, George ran the Boston Marathon yesterday. And all of a sudden, much more than I wanted, I became the center of attention and questions are flying at me about the, you know, how far is it and, and what was it and, and how did I feel? And all the typical all of, questions, yeah. I mean, back then, you, you, you can't imagine, no one knew anyone who'd run a marathon. And toward the end of it, David Susskind said to me, do you have any friends who ran the race who can also talk? And I said, yeah, sure. So I got George Sheehan, um, who was, a, a, you know, by now a, uh -huh. a, a good friend of mine. Vince Chiappetta, who, who was, uh, you know, the guy I just told you about. And he's a character. I mean, he's still around. Um, and a man named Andy Crichton, who was a senior editor of Sports Illustrated. And he had run the Boston Marathon the year before and had sent me a letter of instructions of things I should and shouldn't do when I went up to Boston. <laughs> because he, he, by my, you know, terms was an expert. He had run the race once. Uh, and he told me all kinds of incredible stuff. The race started at noon. And Do you remember what was on that list? Oh, I Some do. of it? I do, Mario. And somewhere I have it. Among the things he said were, back then there were no buses to the start. You understand. It was a very different deal. He said, when you go to Hopkinton, do not drive out over the course. If you do, you will not want to return by foot. <laughs> and then he said, and this is when the race began at noon. He said, um, it's a long distance. So here's my suggestion for your breakfast. And I followed it to the letter, a stack of pancakes a bowl of oatmeal, an English muffin, and plenty of coffee to wash it down. I mean, as if people had been dying of starvation on Heartbreak Hill, right? But this was perceived wisdom at that, at that point. You wrote and about this a couple of years ago, I, I think, for did. the New York Times. Yeah, I remember this it. article. I'm telling the exact story. It was, okay. it was my 50th anniversary, and... Yeah, so it would have been 2019, exactly. Two, it was two years ago, April. And I, I went back and, you know, quoted from, <laughs> from uh, this guy, Andy Crichton. And, and so then the four of us went on the show. And, you know, he asked all these, you know, what you might not call basic running questions, but when you've been running at the Central Park Reservoir, have you ever spotted Jacqueline Kennedy? You know, that kind of question. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it, was, uh, it was quite a interest. It was, it was probably one of the first times uh, 
that runners had ever gone on a talk show in my, in my, I would guess, you know. I love it. At the yeah. time, did you identify as a runner? Was it part of your identity as someone yeah. in his mid to late 30s? Um, let's put it this way. Most people thought of me as a magazine publisher. Uh, the small group of runners within our group, Gary Merka, Ted Corbett, Fred Lebo, the people I'm talking about, Nina Cusick. Yeah, we all identified ourselves as runners. But the rest of the world, I mean, the rest of the world couldn't care less. I mean, we cared a lot about running. But no one else, you know, now you mentioned the New York Marathon. Someone says, oh, my brother-in-law this and Mm -hmm. this guy in my office that and i'm usually at 103rd street i mean you know everyone has some uh, connection to it or i ran it once back in whatever um no one cared about running back then when you ran that first boston marathon in 1969 did it light any kind of competitive spark in you you went on to run numerous marathons after that some of them very fast you've been in the 230s reasonably okay yeah um i ran 326 and um i i don't know that i knew what it meant it didn't mean a lot to me i was i remembered that you know i couldn't go up and down stairs and i was hobbling and uh, it was just finishing as far as i was concerned and I didn't have any appetite for running another one until, I guess, until I began to forget the grueling last miles. And then I began to think, gee, maybe maybe I can really train and do mm-hmm. this differently and do long runs and put in more mileage. And, and, then I began to say, maybe I could break three hours, you know, like a lot of people say. And the next year, uh, sure enough, I, I went up and, and I did. Uh, absolutely. When was it that you ran Boston with Joan Benoit? Ah. Lockstep. And yeah. I think finished in sub 240, was it? Yeah, 238. So that's a good one. Tony and I... Um, we had a nice dinner, as, as I mentioned to you, with Bill and Amby and Frank in Boston uh, a few weeks ago. And normally we've been doing this for years and usually Joni's joined us and Dina has, has come. But Joni and Dina didn't come in from Chicago in time for that dinner Saturday night. So she got in late and it just happened I bumped into her in, in the in the lobby and she said I, I had uh, there there had been a something something an event or something and I'd just gone out and I I I had some dinner and I was just gonna come up and watch baseball. And um she said, uh, are you game to come down for a few beers and you know, just a talk and and I and so I did of course and we sat and talked and that first race uh has come up a lot over the years you may know I mean she and I became very close friends and we're we're, we're very close now 
Um, I met Joni probably a minute after the gun went off in Boston that year. We'd never met. And I had started, I was talking to a woman at the starting line. Her name was Sue Cren, who sadly died in a diving accident at a very young age. And she and I were talking and she had never run Boston and just, you know, just kind of chit-chatting. So we started off together and within a minute, Joni came up and we started running together, the three of us, and we all introduced ourselves and, and so on. And uh, at a certain point, Sue Cren dropped back and Joni and I were running. And I remembered when we were going, and oh, Patty was out ahead of us. We couldn't Patty see her. Catalan Patty Dillon, Patty Catalan, exactly. And uh, it was, boy, was it fun to see her up in Boston. Uh, she's just such a terrific person. Anyway, uh, and she was a friend of mine. Um, and she was out in front of us. And people, you know, bikes or whatever, would yell, second woman, second woman. And um, Joni was running. It was kind of a chilly drizzle. I remembered um, as we were getting ready to go into Wellesley, I said, Joni, I got to tell you something. You know how you become friends. You, you put in you put in 13 miles with someone and you, you're bonded, you bond quick, right? right? Exactly. And it's such an interesting thing, the way that happens. And I said, I got to tell you something. I think it was, I think it was a couple of years ago. I, 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 I said, I came through here with, um, I can't remember, was it Mickey Gorman? I, I, but we can check the, the results and, and, and find out. But so this was 79, so around 77. I think I said, I came through here with Mickey and you and I, you and I are on faster pace right now. And she won the race and she looked up at me and she said, George, you made my day. <laughs> and sometime after that, as we headed into the hills, she was wearing a long sleeve T-shirt over her singlet, her college singlet. And she took it off. I remembered she took it off and just sort of tossed it to the side as if to say, you know, now it's time to run, you know. And off she went into the hills, leaving me, uh, you know, kind of behind. And I began to struggle and I was trying, you know, the whole right brain, left brain thing. And I'm trying to figure out what my finishing time's going to be. You, you know, Boston wasn't terrific early days on mile markers and stuff. And I kept getting 3.02 as the finishing time. And I thought, God, I, I, I can't break three hours. That really depresses me. And a friend of mine, a runner from Central Park came by and he said, 
great, George, 242 pace. And I said, then I got really depressed, Mario. This shows you, you know, what what things can be like. Uh, (laughs) I, I said, Dan's running 242 and I can't break three hours. Now, that makes zero sense, right? But I, 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 I was like, oh, no. I mean, and then I remember we got down to where Bill's store, he used to have a store down around Cleveland Circle. Right. As you got into town. Just past Boston College. Exactly. And Bill had said, when you get to my store, there's four miles to go. He, he, I remember he had said that, and I thought, well. So all of a sudden, I go, I get there, and I look at my watch, and I add a half an hour, thinking even if things aren't great, I'll, you know, I'll get there. Uh, taking a, you know, sort of the wide approach to how long it would take me to finish. And all of a sudden, I'm at like 242 pace. And I, and you know, if you're in a marathon, late in a marathon, and someone gives you, in your mind, 20 minutes, that is a gift <laughs> from, from heaven. And just at this point, Sue Crane came up. She comes up behind me. And she says, you know, like we all say to each other, the biggest check in the mail, it's, uh, you're looking great, George. And so I thought, well, now I'll stay with Sue. And we're running along and people all carried these transistor radios back then. And we had learned that, you know, Bill had won the race. Next thing we're hearing, Joni has overtaken Patty. And she's winning the race, and Sue Cran and I, who are friends of Joni's for, you know, what, an hour and a half, <laughs> we're slapping each other's hands. It's, it's bizarre, because Patty was a real friend of mine, and we're slapping each other's hands and kind of chuckling, and Sue Cran and I come in together, and uh, I, the, as, I, as I said at the time, the third and fourth women in the Boston Marathon. And then there's Joni with a wreath and we're all hugging each other. Uh, that one, that one uh, partly, I mean, of course, it stayed with me because Joni won the race and because I've repeated the story. And that's how stories often stay with you. But that was a, a, a terrific one. And then, of course... Uh, Joni went on to become a the real deal. I appreciate you sharing that. It's incredible to hear it from someone who was who was in it at the time and saw it all unfold up front. I want to transition to your relationship with running. You mentioned how you ran as a quote unquote slow four hundred well yeah. quarter miler yeah. in high school in college, and then started running around the block in your late thirties because you weren't happy with how you felt and you'd put on some weight and eventually that led to marathons and then faster marathons. You're 87 years old now. You still mm-hmm. run. You've been running for way more than half your life at this point. Yeah. How has your relationship to it evolved over the course of the past five decades? Yeah. Now, 
You asked uh, back then, did I identify as a runner? Well, I certainly do now. I ran 5.2. That for me is long these days, miles on the treadmill this morning. Um, And it's a big part of my life. now I mix it up a little more with, uh, we have a little workout room in, in my building here. And so I mix it up with an elliptical and a bike and a rowing machine. We got, we got one of each of the four, and I, I kind of love that. So I'm running few miles, not a lot. Uh, but I probably would say I run six days a week, uh, much more on the treadmill than out. Um, but now it's it's just baked in, Mario. I I may miss a day, as I say. I try not to. So it probably averages out to six days a week that I'll do a run that could be as short as two and a half miles. On the long side, I'm probably running five now. How does it feel when you're moving your body in that way? I mean, obviously you've slowed down a bit over a the lot. years. I've slowed down a lot, and <laughs> but does even, it still feel even the same? in the last in the last couple of years? It's funny how fast the decline gets um, after eighty. I mean, I was still when I was eighty. I ran the Brooklyn Half Marathon with a friend. And we were, we were, we went through 10 miles in just under 90 minutes. And I wanted to break two hours. And after the race, uh, I was a little despondent until he said to me, uh, George, he said, you know, look, he said, one hour, 59 and 63 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) So I missed, I missed it by a little bit, but, um, that time has just, it's just been dropping, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, the nine minute pace is something I, I couldn't do for 10K and now I, then I couldn't do it for 5K. It, it, it's just a fact of life. But I feel great that the moving parts are moving and that I'm able to do it and I I I think it's you know we we I think it's made a huge difference in just uh, I mean I'm talking about the physical I mean mm-hmm. forget all the friends I've made and all the good experiences I've had I I think um, it it it's it keeps you in the game I really think it it's a a big factor. Could you ever imagine your life without it at this point? No. I mean, it may come that running becomes walking. And by the way, a lot of people who see me running now think I'm walking, just so you, <laughs> just so you know. Uh, but if, uh, if it becomes walking, I have a friend. He's an amazing guy. He... And I only talked to him about a week ago. He's 97. His name is John Cahill. He's the only 97-year-old I know with a ponytail. When he was 72, and I think I've got this right, he ran 3.05 in the marathon. He lives out in Salt Lake City. 
And he called me, I mean, like a week ago and said, you know, any chance I could get some finish line seats for the marathon? He hasn't been traveling. I said, man, would I love to see you in New York. And he told me he ran a year ago or maybe before the year before the pandemic when he was 95, something like 15 5K races. I mean, and, you know, they get slower and slower and slower. Uh, but he's amazing. I love that. Yeah. Aside from the physical benefits that running's provided you throughout your entire life and the fact that you're still doing it now at the age of 87, what other benefits does it bring to you, whether that's social? I mean, you did say you run on your treadmill a lot more now, but yeah. does it help you to think through things as, say, chairman of the New York Roadrunners and various other things that you're involved with? Like when you're out running, like what's on what's on your mind? Like what else is it doing for you? Different things every every day. It depends on what's going on in my life. Could be could be roadrunner related, could be family related. I've got uh, four sons, two are stepsons, but they're sons. Uh seven grandchildren and uh, they're all part of my life you know and so things are going on with them i mean it, it, uh, often wonderful things good marks in school or often issues that uh, you know people have uh so you know i would love to tell you i'm one of these people who goes out and has all these incredibly creative thoughts and then I come down and I, I come back and I put them down on paper and uh, sometimes I do. Uh, sometimes I come come back and I, I jot things down that I think, uh, uh, you know, might be of some interest. Uh, but I think it's just, it's just a continuation of what's going on in my life at that moment. And, um, but I will say this, um, if there's stress, stressful stuff and, you know, who doesn't have that? Um, the run eases it. It, it absolutely does. There, I, I, we hear this, of course, from lots of people. Um, and, you know, more and more people are figuring out what's going on in terms of brain chemistry uh, that, that eases uh, anxiety and stress. I'm talking about serious uh, stress with people, you know, clinical uh, uh, anxiety. Uh, I, but I feel that. And, and so years and years ago, I kind of assumed a, 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 a mantra, if you will, and that is, you know, you'd come home from work and you hadn't run, but and and it, it is, you know, when in doubt, do it, and it served me well, and it still doesn't mean I haven't missed some days. I, it, it, but I'm kind of on the fence. I'm a little tired. I don't feel up to it. A lot of my mind. Get out the door, get in some miles, and I, I always find I'm better off for it. It's still a huge part of who you are. Yeah, it's a huge part of who I am, absolutely. 
Now, I have no idea what it feels like to be 87 years old, but at your age and still getting out and running regularly, I'd call it six days a week pretty regular as far as running goes. It's regular. The average person. Does it help you to feel younger or more energetic or to hold on to, you know, your youth in some way? Definitely. Absolutely. And I say it, Mario, because I have, you know, obviously I have a lot of friends my age, uh, people I grew up with. I've got my oldest friends from kindergarten and uh, still as friends. So I, I see a lot of different people and I see all different um, stages of the way people age. And uh, I think those who've been really active uh, overall, I think they've fared really well. I'd love to pivot and talk about your career in publishing. It's a field that I've been in myself for the last several years. You've been in it for a majority of your life at this point. Did you always know that you wanted to be in media and publishing or how did that come about for you? It it was fortuitous. I didn't know it. I, I, uh, so I was a history major and that didn't prepare you for a lot. I mean, other than maybe teaching and so on. Hey, I made it in philosophy. I understand. <laughs> there you go. And so back in my era, every male had to go in the military back in the 50s. And so I, and you could, your basic choice was you could be an enlisted man for two years, or you could go to officer candidate school or ROTC or something and take an extra year plus, and I became a naval officer. And that's where I fell in love with Italy. I was stationed on an old ship that was home ported in Naples and fell in love with Italy and so on. But during that time, I didn't really know what I was going to do after the Navy. And I knew I needed a craft of some kind. And so I went to business school uh, it, it, it just because I didn't know anything about business. And I thought if I at least did that, uh, maybe I can get a job. And at that point, I wanted something that was international. That, that sort of was what really appealed to me. And the first job, I looked at some different ones. It was there was the lowest paying of the ones that. I was offered coming out of business school. It was at Time Life International, 9,000 bucks a year. And Mobile Oil International was throwing $13,000 in front of me. So uh, I took the Time Life job because it just looked more interesting. So there was no grant plan. I wanted to do something international. Uh, Their job looked appealing, and then I got into publishing, and I spent five years there, and then I became the founding publisher of New York Magazine on what obviously was a fairly limited 
resume, but it was a startup and um, it was it was extraordinary. Uh, Mario, I mentioned earlier that we launched the magazine in 68. So this is a magazine with writers, including, you know, Tom Wolfe mm-hmm. and Gloria Steinem and Jimmy Breslin and, and, and so on. And, and sadly, the only remaining founders of the magazine are Gloria Steinem and myself. I mean, you, you know, obviously the others have passed on. Um, so we launched the magazine in April 68, and it turned out it was a weekly, and it turned out that was the week that Martin Luther King was assassinated. The first issue had just hit the newsstands. And you know enough American history to know that six weeks later, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. There were riots at the Democratic Convention in Chicago. And, you know, Nixon was nominated and elected when he, you know, was proclaimed basically politically dead. Uh, it was it was a time of huge upheaval. The war in Vietnam. Exactly. And. So here we were with this stable of then young, but already making names for themselves writers uh, coming on. And it was it was it was, you know, unbelievable time to be publishing a magazine and particularly a magazine like that, which people took to. I mean, it, it you know, it it was a. It, you know, it, it was something people uh, really cared about. The, the the quality of the writing and was was quite something. And uh, so, yeah, that's that was all part of my early days in publishing. What were your goals as a publisher at the time? Yeah, I, w- I wish I could recollect it was to. <laughs> and not run out of money to survive. I, I know it sounds funny, but startups are like that. And we were getting money from, you know, it wasn't venture capital firms. It was, uh, you know, well-to-do New Yorkers who wanted to go to parties with, you know, celebrated writers and stuff like that. And, um, we wanted to keep them aboard because we had to go through a couple of more financings. Even though the magazine was popular, uh, you know, we needed, we didn't raise that much to begin with. So we needed more money to keep it going. So I think to be candid with you, it was survival. I, I think that was what, I probably was waking up at three o'clock in the morning thinking about, I'd love to tell you it was great journalism and uh, changing the world. And <laughs> but I, I, I think it was keeping the magazine going. Certainly the first year, couple of years. Yeah. How did that evolve over time, especially as you moved to other publications and different areas of interest? 
Yeah, I mean, I got better at, at what I was doing. I mean, I was a man. I mean, when we when I left Time Inc. Um, to go and start raising money to, you know, be part of the launch of New York, I, I, I left Time Inc. when I was 32 and I was 33 when we uh, launched the magazine. Uh, let's see. Uh, I want to make sure that's right. 68, April 68. Yeah, I was 33. Um, so I, I would say I was not a terribly good manager. Or I had no real experience at that. And, you know, you learn on the job. And I had people working for me who were 10 years older than me, you know. Uh, at least in, in many cases. So, uh, but, you know, you kind of make a lot of mistakes and uh, there's pushback. And But over time, you get better at what you do. You gain confidence. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I think it all, it all helped me uh, as we went on you know, with other magazines. And then, you know, I started the Runner magazine, which, you know, was merged together with Runner's World. And I took over the merged magazine. Uh, and by that time, I, I think I felt, you know, comfortable in my own skin uh, running something. I think I understood a good bit about, obviously, publishing and built a team and Worked with great people. Andy Burfoot, I mentioned, still a dear friend of mine, uh, very close. Uh, we worked together for years and years. Um, and all the people who worked with us back then, I, I think I can say, and I hope it doesn't sound arrogant, when I hear from them, they all say it was one of the great work times in my life. It just it just, uh, uh, you know, the, the culture was terrific. Uh, most of us were runners. Uh, you didn't have to be if you were selling advertising or, you know, doing circulation or something. But most were. And I would say the vast majority of people who, that worked with us back then are people that we stayed, we stayed in touch with. During this time in the late 1960s, you're just getting into running. You are heavy into magazine publishing and trying to keep the ship afloat, so to speak. You mentioned earlier how at the time when you were a runner, there weren't a lot of other runners. And I can't imagine that there were a lot, if any, running publications at the time. When did you, know, you with your publisher hat on as a runner start to notice running publications or a lack of them and start thinking about getting involved in that area? Well, well, Bob Anderson has to be given a lot of credit because he had been in college in Kansas and he started it as a, you know, just kind of a results, uh, you know, publication, nothing more, uh, you know, distance running log. And then eventually he, literally dropped out of college and, you know, 
went to the West Coast and, and started doing Runner's World. And he deserves an enormous amount of credit because he was a runner and he, he saw the need. Uh, but what I saw, and I, I got to know Bob a little during that time. I remember visiting him out there. I was a runner and interested. And, but also what I saw was uh, he, in my opinion, was the right, you know, he was in the right place at the right time as things were taking off and running. But it didn't have the professionalism uh, of a big-time magazine. And uh, I felt whether it was the graphics, the design, the, the journalism, uh, all of it, it just struck me it could be upgraded. And I think I had, you know, learned a lot from being at New York Magazine, for example. Um, and being a time ink before that, which was a you know really the premier magazine publishing company in the world, Time, Life, Sports Illustrated, mm -hmm. you know, um, and so I saw uh, an opening. I mean, it's the classic entrepreneur story. Either you come along and create an idea, which Bob did, or someone says. I think I can do it better. And I gathered Frank and Bill, Marty LaCorey back at the time was, <clears throat> you know, a great, well-known champion who became a TV commentator in the sport. I gathered them together as contributing editors. Uh, soon George Sheehan came over and joined me and, and, um, and the, in the runner magazine, uh, I, I think was really impressive. Uh, it, 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 uh, it raised, it, it raised the bar and, uh, and then Bob, I, I, I don't know, I think it was personal reasons and different things, but he had decided to sell runner's world to Rodale, Rodale Press. And the president of Rodale came to me and said, why don't we, you know, put the two together and eliminate the competition and you come and run them, run it, uh, the joint magazine. And it's kind of interesting because I hadn't seen him for two years and he and I and two other friends of ours uh, from Rodale uh, all had dinner uh, last week uh, and, and that was really kind of nice. Um, so, you know, that was, that was what happened and how it came about. And often we all know these kind of mergers, you bring two different groups of people together and, you know, it often doesn't work out that well. Uh, this one did, though. This one really did. And, uh, you know, I, I have I have great memories of all those years. And then and then I was publisher of Runner's World. And then I started 
international editions and became the worldwide publisher of Runner's World with editions in South Africa and England and, you know, all over the place. And we used to have international meetings uh, with all the editors and publishers from the different countries. And they were classic. I mean, they they were fantastic. We would do them often at a a world championship in Gothenburg or Stuttgart or Helsinki or, or you know, and, uh, it, it was a good time. You haven't been directly involved in publishing in quite a few years now and at risk of skipping over too much. But from your vantage point, how has the publishing industry in running specifically changed over the last couple of decades, especially as things have moved more and more online? Yeah, I I think um, we've all witnessed um, the the decline of print in people's lives, and the uh, as digital is making its way, and people like yourself doing podcasting and these different platforms. So there was a time, and you know this that. Runner's World was the voice of the sport. It was the Bible of the sport. And I think people got that. And there weren't, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 others that were also competing for the time and attention span of runners. It was, it was, you know, it was what people got. And, and, uh, pretty much every runner got runner's world. And now that world has, has fractured in so many ways. Runner's world still has an audience, um, for sure. Uh, you know, now it's part of Hearst and Hearst has clearly moved it into a, a digital world. Um, and that's going on, you know, not just running. I mean, your question was running, but that's Everywhere. that's publishing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm old-fashioned in, in that I still get a, a, a print newspaper every day, and I like that, but my sons don't, you know. Uh, that doesn't <laughs> – that's just not how their life works anymore. Do you think it's more challenging for some of these bigger legacy publications like A Runner's World to remain relevant today? As you mentioned, things have fractured and smaller, more independent outlets such as my own have popped up and kind of permeated the entire space. Oh, it's much it's much harder. I mean, of course, uh, you know, I would love to tell you that we were publishing geniuses but we had pretty close to a monopoly mm-hmm. when all <laughs> when all said and done and uh uh y- you know it now my gosh you, you you look around and there's so many running outlets and runner's world is it, it's important there's no there's no question in my mind about it, but you've become a, a, a voice, and uh, and so many 
other uh, outlets and vehicles are, are out there. So that does make it tougher, for sure. I've kept you for over an hour and a half at this point. Yeah. I've got two questions left sure. before we wrap this one up. I've seen a quote attributed to you that says, never make a decision on the uphill in running or in life. And I love that. But since I have you, I want to know, what do you mean by that exactly? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, that is one of mine. Um, when we're in a race, like you were on those three hills in Boston last week, what I'm saying is if if you're going to make a decision at that moment, it's probably to slow down, maybe even to, to walk. So keep pushing on the uphill, and that and I, I do apply it way more broadly than running. Wait until you get to the crest of the hill, and you get maybe a little downhill. Then you can make a decision, and it's often a different decision. And it's not to slow down, not to drop out. Uh, that's what I'm saying. I love it. That is sage advice. I'm going to apply it not only to my running, but other areas of my life <laughs> as well. Last question to wrap this one up. It's one that I ask of a lot of my guests, but what is exciting you most in running or about running right now? Yeah, I I think women's running has been so important. I mean, you know, what were the big stories out of Boston last week? Um, Nell Rojas and Shalane, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, think back to Tokyo in the Olympics, uh, I think, and, uh, you know, 400, the two incredible 400-meter hurdlers. And, yeah. and I mean, sure, sure, there were men's performances, but on balance, women. And I look ahead to New York. Uh, so we've got Perez and Molly, Olympic champion. Molly, the new uh, American sensation in the marathon. Uh Big, big stories. And I think this this just spreads right across the sport. I, I see it. Look at the, look at the Chicago results. Uh, you know, American women, second, third, and fourth. I mean, in a world marathon major. That's exciting. So I, I think that's it. If I had to just say it without giving it any thought, uh, dominance of women and the women's stories. I love it. Well, George, I have enjoyed this conversation immensely. <laughs> I do. I thank you for your time, and I appreciate you coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you, Mario. All right. Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to both Runderwear and Precision Hydration for sponsoring this episode of the show. Runderwear's mission is to eliminate the discomfort caused by ill-fitting underwear and to create seamless performance running underwear 
basewear, bras, and socks that are supremely comfortable, moisture-wicking, and chafe-free. Take a look at runderwear.com and use the code TMS20, that's capital T, capital M, capital S, 2-0, for 20% off at checkout. The folks at Precision Hydration are experts in helping you nail and customize your nutrition and hydration strategy for training and racing. I've been a devotee to their products for the past four years, and my last few marathons wouldn't have gone as well without them. Go to precisionhydration.com and take their free online sweat test or use the quick carb calculator to get a personalized hydration or nutrition strategy to test in training. As a listener of the show, you can get 15% off your first order by using the code TMS15, that's capital T, capital M, capital S, 15 when checking out. You can even book a free 20-minute video call with them to ask any questions that you have about hydration and fueling for your next event. Couple more things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my longtime producer, John Summerford, who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for running the AM Shakeout social media accounts and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last thing, if you are digging this podcast, I think you will love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout, and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to. It's a quick read, five, 10 minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. (laughs) 